0: everyone and welcome back to Curtain Call, a podcast where we talk about Broadway musicals and their depictions of gender. I am your host Jamie Quarter, and I am so glad you decided to join me again. Let's get this show on the road. In last week's episode, we ventured into the contemporary age of Broadway, exploring two Tony Award-winning musicals that were even new to me. Our discussion of Sondheim's 1971 production of Company and Weber and & Rice's 1980 production of Evita talked about everything from society's double standards of marriage to the hypersexualization of a female political figure to employing the male gaze on a Broadway stage. This week, we continue our conversation of the contemporary age in the 1980s by analyzing two well-known musicals that I am actually quite familiar with this time, The 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 first musical up for discussion is the 1987 production of Les Miserables, based on the Victor Hugo novel of the same name, Les Miserables, or simply Les Mis, first opened in France in 1980, before being transferred to London in 1985. Two short years later, it made the move to The Great White Way, opening at the Broadway Theatre in 1987. Since closing in 2003, the show has been revived two times, once in 2006 and again in 2014. The latter revival featured a star-studded cast, including Broadway stars, Ramen. Karimlu, Casey Levy, and Andy Mintas, as well as Stranger Things actor Gaten Matarazzo as Gavroche. Additionally, we will also be revisiting the work of Andrew Lloyd Webber with his classic 1988 musical The Phantom of the Opera. Also based on a novel, this time by French writer Gaston Leroux, The Phantom of the Opera also started on the West End before making its way to New York City. The Broadway sensation has yet to close in its 33-year run, making it the longest-running Broadway show ever. Notable Broadway replacements include Norm Lewis and Sierra bogus. Now, why did I choose Phantom of the Opera and Les Mis in a decade where classics such as Into the Woods, Dreamgirls, and Cats existed? In addition to my vehement hatred for Cats the musical, there were just no other productions that sparked as heated of a debate around gender as Les Mis and Phantom. As I researched for this podcast episode, I came across angry musical theater fans in the comment sections of many blog posts, some arguing that these musicals promote positive depictions of women, while others passionately counter all the reasons that they terribly represent women. As a general fan of both shows, I never considered either through a feminist lens, and I felt like it was time I did. This episode, as I mentioned last week, will act as a sort of debate where I present arguments from both sides, letting you decide whether Les Mis and Phantom of the Opera should be classified as feminist musicals. You might wholeheartedly agree with one side or the other, or you might come to the conclusion that they both have their pros and cons, and that is completely okay. But before you jump to conclusions, let's talk about the musicals first starting with Les Mis. Now, I'm going to try and keep our plot recap of Les Mis as abridged as possible and mostly concentrated on the storylines of key female characters. I could bore you with an extensive retelling of the narrative, but A, I think many people, theater fans and not, are somewhat familiar with the happenings of Les Mis, and B, our discussion of gender later on is all about the women of this French tragedy. So here's what you should know. A warning, my French is very rusty, so if I mispronounce something, I am genuinely so sorry. Set in montreuil sur mer France, in the early 1800s, the audience is first introduced to Jean Valjean, a former convict who is now a wealthy factory owner and the mayor of the small town. In his factory works a young woman named Fantine, a single mother trying to support her daughter Cosette, who is being raised by an innkeeper and his wife while she toils in the city. One day, a co-worker steals a letter about Cosette from the young mother, revealing to the other workers that Fantine has a child out of wedlock after a fight breaks out among the women the foreman and the other workers use the incident as a pretense to fire Fontine. come on ladies what happened to girls supporting girls anyway Fontine is turned out to the streets in the tear-jerking number i dreamed a dream she reflects on her broken dreams and about cosette's father who abandoned them both desperate for money she sells her locket and hair Now if you've seen the film adaptation of this Broadway show, you'll know that Fontaine also sells two of her teeth, a sacrifice she makes in the novel and the film, but not in the Broadway musical. Having nothing else to sell except herself, Fontaine is unfortunately forced into sex slavery. A note for listeners, remember the words sex slavery here. Fontaine is not a prostitute or a sex worker, she's forced to work as a sex slave. And there is a difference, a difference I will elaborate on later. When she fights back against an abusive customer, Javert, the original guard who released Jean Valjean from prison, now a police inspector stationed in montreuil sur mer arrives to arrest her. Valjean passes the scene and pities the woman before realizing that Fantine was one of his workers. She blames him for her misfortunes and he is overcome with guilt, demanding Javert release her. He subsequently takes her to a hospital as she is suffering from tuberculosis. While Valjean continues to do good deeds and Javert, still unaware that the new mayor is the convict he's been looking for for all of these years, continues his odd obsession over Valjean. Fantine deliriously dreams of Cosette in the hospital. The former inmate turned benevolent mayor comes to visit Fantine, promising to find and protect her daughter. Relieved that Cosette will be safe, Fantine succumbs to her illness and dies. Meanwhile, in Montfermeil the duplicitous innkeepers, the Thénardiers, order Cosette around like a servant, treating her very cruelly. The couple extorts money from Fantine by claiming that Cosette is regularly and seriously ill, as well as demanding money to feed and clothe the young girl, all the while indulging in their own daughter, Eponine As she cleans, young Cosette dreams of an amazing life where she is not forced to work and is treated lovingly by her mother. While on an errand to draw water, Cosette runs into Valjean, who offers the Tenadiers payment to adopt her. The couple feigns concern for the orphan, claiming that they love her like a daughter and that she is in fragile health. They bargain with him, but he ultimately pays 1,500 francs for the girl. If my math is correct, that's almost $300 in current currency. The mayor and the young girl then leave for Paris. We jump nine years into the future, 1832 to be exact, where upheaval is on the horizon. Among those mingling in the streets are the student revolutionaries Marius Pontmercy and Angel Ross, the Tenadiers, who have lost their inn and are now running a street gang, their daughter, Ebonine, who is now grown and in love with the oblivious Marius, as well as the streetwise young urchin at Gavroche. The gang plans to con some charitable visitors, who turn out to be Valjean and Cosette, who has grown into a beautiful young woman. Amongst the squabble, Cosette runs into Marius, and the pair fall in love at first sight. Thenardier suddenly recognizes Valjean, but before they can finish the robbery, Javert, now an inspector stationed in Paris, comes to the rescue. To his chagrin, the father-daughter duo has already escaped. Meanwhile, Marius persuades Eponine to help him find Cosette. Like I said, he's pretty unobservant of his friend's evident feelings for him. As the revolutionaries map out their course of action, Cosette is at home, dreaming about her chance meeting with Marius. It is then that Ebonine leads Marius to Cosette's garden, where the young lovers meet again. They confess their love for one another as the heartbroken Ebonine watches on, lamenting that Marius has fallen in love with another. Suddenly, Denardier and his gang arrive, intending to rob Valjean's house, but Ebonine stops them by screaming a warning. Valjean, who thinks the intruder is actually Javert, tells Cosette that it is time once again for them to go on the run, planning for them to flee France all together. On the eve of the 1832 Paris uprising, the father-daughter team go into exile. Angel Ross encourages all of Paris to join the revolution. Ebony acknowledges despairingly that Marius will never love her, and Marius is conflicted whether to follow Cosette or join the uprising. Ultimately, he decides to stand with his friends and all anticipate what the dawn will bring in the infamous number One More Day. As the students build a barricade to serve as their rallying point, Marius discovers that Ebonine has disguised herself as a boy to join the rebels, wanting to keep his best friend away from the impending violence, he sends her to deliver a farewell letter to Cosette. As dads do, Valjean intercepts the letter and learns about Marius and Cosette's romance. The French army tries to convince the students to surrender, but the rebels stand their ground. Javert arrives, but Gavroche quickly identifies him as a spy and the students take him captive. Their plan is to spark a general uprising with their act of defiance, hoping that all the people of Paris will side with them and overwhelm the army. Eponine returns to find Marius, but is accidentally shot by the soldiers crossing the barricade. As Marius holds her, she assures him that she feels no pain and reveals her love for him before dying in his arms. Alright, now two of our leading ladies are dead. What's next? Disguised as a soldier, Valjean arrives at the barricade, hoping that he might protect his future son-in-law from being a casualty of this war. When a small battle takes place and Valjean saves Angel Ross's life, the father asks the student to be the one who executes Javert. Instead, he lets him go. After a quiet night at the barricades, the French army gives a final warning, but the rebels agree to fight to the last man, and they do just that. Everyone at the barricade is killed except for Valjean and a gravely wounded Marius, who escape into the sewers. Javert returns to the barricade, searching for Valjean amongst the bodies, but finds the open sewer grating. Valjean carries Marius through the sewers, and after collapsing momentarily, successfully brings the boy through to the exit, where Javert is waiting for him. Valjean begs Javert for one hour to bring Marius to a doctor, and Javert reluctantly agrees. If the cost of Marius's safety is his own life, Valjean will do anything to keep him alive and well for his daughter. Marius, wounded but alive, wonders who saved his life. He is reunited with Cosette, and they reaffirm their love for one another. In addition to giving the couple his blessing, Valjean confesses to Marius that he is an escaped convict and must go away because his presence endangers Cosette, making Marius promise never to tell her. A few months later, the young couple is married. At their reception, it is revealed that Valjean is the one who saved Marius' life, and the newlyweds leave to find him. At a convent, Valjean awaits his death, having nothing left to live for. The spirit of Fantine appears to him and tells him that he has been forgiven and will soon be with God. Cosette and Marius arrive to find Valjean near death, and the father thanks God for letting him live long enough to see Cosette again. Marius thanks him for saving his life. Valjean then gives Cosette a letter, confessing his troubled past and the truth about her mother. As he dies, the spirits of Fantine and Ebonine guide him to heaven, and they are joined by the spirits of those who died at the barricades. Now, despite my attempts to water it down, I still think that is a pretty complex plot. And imagine, that's only about 60% of what happens. The roles of Fantine, Cosette, and Ebony are coveted among young female actresses, but as we heard in the musical's recap, their overall storyline and fate aren't all that desirable. I mean, who really wants to die not even 45 minutes into the production? This is where our debate starts, by discussing the actual role of the Les Mis women, whether they should be considered lead female characters or if they are merely supporting players to their male counterparts. While many within the Broadway community adore these leading women, there are just as many that criticize them and the musical in general for promoting sexist ideals. Since the musical opened, fans, critics, and scholars have condemned it for its uncomplimentary portrayals of women. But more recently, with the release of the 2012 film adaptation, even more spectators have taken issue with it. Despite being featured prominently in Hugo's novel and in the marketing for the musical and movie, the women of Les Mis are often labeled as two-dimensional characters, who are faced with unimaginable circumstances and then, more often than not, die in the end. Stacey Wolf, professor of theater at Princeton University, wrote a really compelling article after seeing the film adaptation in December 2012 about gender politics in Les Mis. In her piece titled, Why We Love Les Miserables Despite Its Miserable Gender Stereotypes, she reflects on Fantine, Cosette, and Ebonine's actual roles in the musical, stating, quote, Les Miserables should have feminists like me up in arms. The musical takes the female characters from a 150-year-old novel about a French rebellion and makes them bit players. They exist not to drive the plot, but to sacrifice for the men, the real stars of the show. End quote. The female characters, she continues, are only there for the men to either save, pity, or forget. And while that seems like a really blunt statement to make, she is absolutely correct. First, we meet Fantine, a woman abandoned by the father of her child, used by men as a sexual object, then pitied and saved by Valjean right before she succumbs to her illness. Next, we're introduced to Cosette, who is adopted slash quote-unquote saved by Valjean and then protected by Marius, her new husband. From a young age, the ingenue gets passed from one dominant male figure to the next until she is married off and don't get me wrong marius seems like a lovely man i just wish our girl had some agency you know Lastly, we have Ebonine, the young woman who is so blinded by her love for a boy that she joins a revolution and is subsequently killed for it. I don't know about you all, but I don't think there is a man in this world that I'd be willing to go to war for. Maybe Harry Styles, but that's another story. Prior to reading Wolf's article, I never viewed these leading females in this way. To me, they were still just as important as their male counterparts, but now I find myself agreeing with Wolf. Rather than leads, the women act more as supporting characters, who are still necessary to the story but are secondary to the men. As Wolf. Explains, quote, the women of Les Mis trigger the men's ethical struggles and bravery, but they don't actually do anything. Instead, they emote, propelling others into action, end quote. What frustrates me is that it's just the English version of this tale that depicts the principal female characters in this way. In the novel, original French musical, and even the film, the lovely ladies of Les Mis did not play a passive role. They were more complex, well-rounded characters that didn't fall into stereotypical gender roles. As the musical evolved from France to London to New York City, songs were being cut, scenes rewritten, and some characters were greatly altered. For example, the politicized ebonine of the French production is transformed into a love sick girl. In addition to completely revamping her character, the creative team rewrote her notorious ballad On My Own. Originally a number about poverty and hunger, Ebonine now sings about unreciprocated love. Unfortunately, Ebonine is not the only female character significantly modified in the English version of the show. Cosette also undergoes alterations. Blogger Jarek Isaacs talks about this apparent change in character from book to stage slash screen in an article for The Bubble. While Cosette is still sweet and relatively naive in the novel, she has a proper personality, as he writes, quote, she is more world-wise and is committed to helping the poor, so much so that she contemplates becoming a nun and devoting herself to charity. She is also more active in the novel. Rather than simply waiting for Marius to whisk her away, she actually engages with people in the world around her and wants to escape her sheltered life. In the musical, Isaacs continues, we're seeing a simplified version of Cosette, one that is so watered down that it would be a stretch to even call her a character. He even likens her to a Disney princess, so perfect and delicate that she wouldn't really be that out of place with a menagerie of talking animals. End quote. Personally, I think that it's a shame that these women, once depicted as rebellious and independent, are now reduced to side characters. But if you look at the 1980s, especially the late 1980s when Les Mis first opened, these static female characters make sense. In her article, Wolf briefly mentions that the late 1980s were not kind to ambitious women, especially in popular media. Along with film and novels, the TV industry fed into these anti-feminist ideals. As Wolf writes, Quote, "Television didn't allow single mothers to live successful, fulfilling lives. They all failed personally and professionally." End quote. If we turn our attention back to Les Mis, we realize that Fontaine was not spared from this convention. She is the archetypal sacrificial mother who gives up everything for her child, yet is still beat up by life. This betrayal of single mothers is by no means positive, and I wholeheartedly advocate for narratives depicting single moms living fulfilling lives. But I don't necessarily believe that we should be so quick to dismiss Fontaine's character either, because Fontaine does represent the plight of many single mothers. In the United States, solo parenting continues to be commonplace among many households, and more often than not, single mothers are the ones struggling the most. According to a recent Pew Research study conducted in 2018, Single mothers are almost twice as likely as fathers to be living below the poverty line. That's 3 in 10 women who must provide for their families on low-wage jobs. I'll just let that sink in real quick now being a single mother is hard enough when you're not worrying about your financial situation as well imagine having to do it all on your own trying to balance a career to support your family yet having a full-time job means finding additional assistance daycare is an option if you don't have another family member to help out but oftentimes these nurseries are expensive if you can't afford daycare and a full-time job won't fit around your family schedule you're left worrying about bills piling up keeping your children and yourself fed and clothed, etc. If we condemn pieces of media like Les Mis, and thus erase these characters from the big screen, single mothers, especially those living in poverty, may feel underrepresented or unseen. From a feminist perspective, I completely understand why critics and scholars are upset with the musical's depiction of Fantine. She got dealt a bad hand, like a really bad hand. But so many women in real life are also dealt poor hands, and who struggle every day as single mothers. Not all of them are forced into sex slavery like Fantine, thank God, but they are still making risky choices in order to take care of their family. Instead of criticizing her character, I think it would be more beneficial to look at the positive aspects of Fantine, such as being a diligent, selfless mother despite her terrible situation. During a time when having a child out of wedlock was frowned upon, Fantine very well could have abandoned Cosette, much like her partner abandoned them both. Without this burden, I'd assume the young woman could have lived a relatively normal life, yet she owned up to her responsibility responsibilities and supported her daughter as best as she could. As blogger Megan Kearns writes in her article, Les Miserables, Sex Work, and Fantine as a symbol of women's oppression, Fantine struggles to make ends meet to pay for Cosette, even placing the little girl's welfare over her own health. This is the type of single mother I think we should be praising, those who are supportive and dedicated to their children in spite of their financial circumstances. I honestly don't think we see single mothers depicted enough in entertainment, and I'd hate to cancel such a wonderful mother as Fantine. Now, I am a woman of my word, and I said I would bring up the topic of sex slavery later, so that's what I'm going to do now. For the final part of our discussion of gender and Les Mis, I wanted to expound upon the depiction of sex slavery in this narrative. Not necessarily in the musical, but more in the novel and the film adaptation. As I mentioned previously, there is a striking difference between prostitution and sex work in the sex slavery industry that I don't think many people are familiar with. Even great scholars like Wolf boil Fontaine down to simply a hooker with a heart of gold. But the young woman is so much more than that. The main difference between being a prostitute and working in the sex slave industry is choice. Kearns continues. Do people choose sex work, or are they forced into it via trafficking, or do they choose it only because they have no other options or means of earning a living, negating it as a quote unquote choice? Destitute Fontine is forced into the sex slavery industry after selling all of her personal belongings to help pay for Cosette. She has nothing else to sell but herself In the musical, this transformation occurs during the catchy number Lovely Ladies, where the sex workers sing about their nightly activities. Now oftentimes, this song is performed in an upbeat, joking manner. Its raunchy lyrics combined with the actress's suggestive hand gestures are guaranteed to get a laugh. But in other productions, like the 2012 film adaptation, this song takes on a new meaning. In her review of the film, titled Some Musicals Are More Feminist Than Others, Natalie Wilson says that the song instead becomes a battle cry against sexual slavery, with the costuming, makeup, sets, and lighting, bringing the horrors behind the lyrics to life. As with LeMiz's depiction of single mothers, I wouldn't be too quick to argue against these representations. Many women like Fontaine, have no other choice but to resort to sex work in order to survive. Should their experiences also be invalidated and wiped from the big screen? Personally, I think most productions of LeMiz do an excellent job of emphasizing the exploitative nature of the sex slavery industry and how it is a human rights violation. Whether you agree with me or not, that's up to you. While I could continue to talk about the pros and cons of LeMiz, I'm going to switch gears and begin our discussion of The Phantom of the Opera, another show that could be viewed as progressive or problematic. Again, I'm going to try and keep our plot recap of the Phantom of the Opera brief, but I won't be focusing on just the female leads this time, so it might be a bit longer. Damn these contemporary period pieces and their complex plots. Anyways, like Les Mis, the Phantom of the Opera is set in Paris, but this time in the late 1800s. At the Paris Opera House, the cast of a new production are rehearsing on stage when the new owners, Fermin and André, visit the theater. Carlotta, the opera's resident soprano prima donna, begins to perform for the men when a backdrop inexplicably falls from the overhead fly system, just barely missing her. Among the chaos, the anxious chorus girls can be heard whispering about the phantom of the opera. Management tries to downplay the incident, but Carlotta insists that accidents such as that have been happening for years now. She storms out, leaving the show. Without their star, the managers must consider canceling that evening's sold-out performance. However, the opera's ballet mistress, Madame Geary, and her daughter Meg come to the rescue. They inform the men that Christine Day, a chorus girl, can sing Carlotta's role. Desperate, they reluctantly audition her and are surprised to discover that she is very talented. During that evening's performance, the opera's new patron, Raoul, recognizes Christine as his childhood friend. After the show, Christine confesses to Meg that the angel of music, an unseen tutor, has been the one helping her with singing lessons. Raoul pays a visit to Christine's dressing room, where he insists on taking her to dinner. Smooth, Raoul. As he leaves, Christine hears the jealous phantom's voice and demands he reveal himself to her. He obliges, appearing as a ghostly, partially masked face in her mirror. Believing him to be the angel of music sent by her deceased father, Christine is drawn through the mirror to the Phantom. He leads her down into the shadowy sewers below the Opera House, where they board a small boat and cross a lake to his secret lair. That's not creepy at all, right? Once there, the Phantom explains that he has chosen Christine to sing his musical compositions. He then reveals a mirror that reflects an image of her in a wedding dress. This mirror bride gestures to Christine and she faints from shock. The Phantom then covers her up with his cloak and puts her on a bed to rest. The next morning, as the Phantom is composing music at his organ, Christine wakes. Overcome with curiosity, she slips behind the Phantom, lifts his mask, and beholds his grotesquely disfigured face. This enrages him, and Christine goes to run in fear. But the Phantom explains how he just wants to be loved, and Christine, moved to pity, returns the mask to the Phantom. He escorts her back above ground. Meanwhile, Joseph Bouquet, a stagehand at the opera, scares the chorus girls with tales of the opera ghost and his terrible Punjab lasso. Madame Geary arrives and warns Bouquet that he better be careful or else he'll have to face the phantom's wrath. In the manager's office, André and Fermin re-notes from the phantom, but are interrupted by Raoul, who accuses them of sending him a note saying that he should stay away from Christine. Carlotta then bursts in, demanding to know who sent her a note that her, quote, days at the opera populaire are numbered. End quote. As Andre and Firmin tried to calm Carlotta, Madame Geary delivers another note from the Phantom. He demands that Christine replace Carlotta as the countess in the new opera Il Muto and that box five is to be kept empty for him. The managers are warned they will face a disaster beyond imagination if these demands are not met. The managers reassure Carlotta that she will remain their star and Christine will play a minor role. To be honest, if I were in their shoes, I'd do anything the Phantom wanted, but that's just me. The premiere of Il Muto initially goes well, until the voice of the phantom suddenly cuts through the performance. He is enraged that Box 5 was not kept empty for him as he had directed, and that Christine is not the star of the show. Fermin rushes to diffuse the situation by announcing that Christine will take over for Carlotta. Suddenly, the corpse of Joseph Bouquet drops from the rafters, hanging from the Punjab lasso. The managers plead for calm as mayhem erupts, but the phantom simply lets out a sinister laugh. In the ensuing chaos, Christine escapes with Raoul to the roof and tells him about her encounter with the Phantom. Although he is still skeptical, he promises to love and protect her, and Christine reciprocates his vow. The lovers go back inside, unaware that the Phantom has overheard their entire conversation. Heartbroken at this, he swears revenge. He returns to the auditorium and crashes the chandelier into the stage during the curtain call. Now, once Broadway returns, I highly recommend getting a ticket to Phantom purely for the chandelier crash. I've heard it's breathtaking. It is now six months Months later, and the Opera House is planning to host Masquerade Ball. The Phantom, who has been suspiciously MIA since the Chandelier disaster, suddenly returns, demanding that his new opera, Don Juan Triumphant, be produced with Christine in the lead role. As he is known to do, he warns of dire consequences if his demands are not met. Noticing an engagement ring on a chain around Christine's neck, the Phantom angrily pulls it from her and vanishes in a blinding flash of light. As the masquerade attendees scatter in fear, Raoul demands Madame Geary reveal what she knows about the Phantom. She explains that the Phantom is actually a brilliant scholar and composer, among other things, who was born with a terrifyingly deformed face. Feared and reviled by society, he was cruelly exhibited in a cage as part of a traveling fair until he eventually escaped and disappeared. He took refuge beneath the Opera House, which is now become his home. Feeling like they have no other choice, the managers begin planning the Phantom's opera. Raoul, obviously frustrated that the Phantom is obsessed with his fiancée, plots to use the premiere of Don Juan Triumphant as a trap to capture the Phantom. He begs the reluctant Christine to help lure the Phantom into the trap, but she refuses. Torn between her love for Raoul and her admiration of the Phantom, Christine visits her father's grave, longing for guidance. The Phantom appears atop the mausoleum, again under the guise of the Angel of Music. The Weary Christine begins to succumb to the Phantom's influence, but Raoul arrives to rescue her. The Phantom taunts Raoul, hurling fireballs at him, until Christine begs Raoul to leave with her. Furious, the Phantom declares war upon them both armed policemen secure the auditorium watching the phantom during the premiere of don juan Triumphant. during the leading couple's duet christine realizes that the phantom has somehow replaced her stage partner Pianji. the phantom once again expresses his love for christine and forces his ring onto her finger she rips off his mask showing his horrifically deformed face to the entire audience exposed the phantom hurriedly drags christine off the stage and back to his lair Pianji's garotid body is revealed backstage and the opera house plunges into chaos an angry mob but vows to avenge Piangy and Bouquet by finding the Phantom themselves. Madame Geary tells Raoul how to find the Phantom's lair and warns him to be aware of the magical lasso. Down in the lair, the Phantom has compelled Christine to don a wedding dress, much like the Mirror Bride. She explains that she is not fearful of his physical appearance, but rather his inner nature. Raoul reaches the lair and tries to persuade the Phantom to spare Christine and begs him for compassion. The Phantom retorts that the world had never shown him any and uses his magic lasso to tie a noose around Raoul's neck. The Phantom offers Christine an ultimatum. If she stays with him, he will spare Raoul, but if she refuses, Raoul will die. Finally, she tells the Phantom that he is not alone and kisses him, showing him compassion for the first time in his life. Having experienced kindness at last, the Phantom realizes that he cannot win Christine by force and frees Raoul. The couple hurries out of the lair, but Christine quickly returns alone to give the Phantom back his ring. The Phantom finally tells her he loves her and she tearfully exits. As the angry mob closes in, the Phantom huddles on his throne beneath his cloak. Meg is the first to reach the lair, but finds no one there. She approaches the throne and quickly pulls away the Phantom's cloak, finding only his mask. She lifts it up into the light and gazes at it in wonder as the curtain comes down. for you, that. That was a mouthful. As I mentioned before, Phantom and Les Mis are often associated with one another, not only for their Parisian settings and numerous casualties, but because of their depiction of gender roles and feminism in the 1800s. When I first started to research about feminism in the Phantom of the Opera, I honestly was not expecting to stumble upon an entire community of theater fans infuriated by this topic. In the comments of numerous blog posts, commenters were arguing on both sides whether or not this 1988 show should be considered a quote-unquote feminist musical. And some were adamant that feminism be removed from the conversation altogether, stating that it's a period piece and that certain amounts of sexism should be allowed. Yikes. I'm gonna take these comments with a grain of salt, because if you look closely, most of them are an attack on feminism itself and not how the musical represents women. But I'd argue that even though it's set in the late 1800s, it doesn't mean we can't and shouldn't critique it through a current lens to start our discussion of gender in the phantom of the opera i'd like to focus on the christine raoul phantom love triangle that was obviously very problematic like twilight fans who can't choose between edward and jacob phantom of the opera fans are divided when it comes to who should end up with christine the dashing raoul or the mysterious phantom now as someone who's like never a hardcore fan of phantom i'm not a supporter of either team and quite honestly i'm a huge supporter of neither team for a few reasons first while christine is meant to be like the leading female character who has her own narrative, she's designed to be an object of desire for both the Phantom and Raoul. And unfortunately, this means that her own plot gets completely overshadowed by this romantic storyline. By reducing Christine to an object of heterosexual male desire, the musical is openly employing the male gaze. The competing male characters are created to fit this gaze, giving male spectators someone to root for. You have Raoul, the handsome nobleman who is to fight for his love, and the Phantom, the downtrodden, pitiful, outcast who yearns for companionship. While many fans obviously like the Phantom a little less, they still empathize with him, knowing what it's like to be friend-zoned by your crush. Because we viewers are accustomed with the male gaze and the trope of a love triangle, we kind of disregard how harmful these relationships were. Like, if you look closely at the score, you begin to realize how controlling both men are, and that their characters often use possessive language when speaking to or about Christine. Feminist activist Avery Fauci grew up on Phantom, it wasn't until recently that Z critically looked at it through a feminist perspective. In her article, Zier talks about Raoul and Phantom's language choices, stating, quote, "...both characters use the term guide and master is used for the Phantom." Christine pretty much goes along with this entirely. She needs someone to guide her, a strong male figure. And, no surprise, after all, having been raised by her father, then basically put in the Phantom's care as a teacher, then grasping for another male figure in Raoul when the Phantom starts to get creepy end quote. While I'm sure the men love Christine in their own way, both want the girl for themselves to possess and shape her into their ideal image of her. Take the Phantom for example. His desire for a companion to love is so extreme that he basically grooms Christine to be his quote-unquote angel and wife from the start. As a dominant male figure, the Phantom feels like he is entitled to mold her image to his liking. So much so that he literally makes the very creepy mirror bride to represent and physically control his romanticized version of her by placing the doll in a frame-slash-case, the Phantom is further exhibiting his authority and containment of the girl. Now, while the Phantom's actions are far more sinister, Raoul also treats Christine to some extent like property. As Fauchet mentions, Raoul simply assumes that Christine will choose him because they were childhood sweethearts he is the one doing all of the pushing in the relationship constantly pouring out declarations of love until she sort of goes along with it this jealousy plot between Raoul and the phantom got vouchett thinking about the cliche in general and how silly yet reflective it is of our culture as he states quote men feel this rage when another man touches the object of their affection exactly for that reason she is an object men are encouraged to view women as property and thus any sort of expression of desire going in another direction from or to her is a betrayal or a slight upon the owner end quote. And if you think about it, the stereotypical plotline transcends the late 1980s when Phantom the Musical was made. It dates back to the early 1900s when the novel was written and is even relevant today as movies like The Twilight Saga and The Hunger Games continue to be popular. This is why I argue that despite Phantom being a period piece, it’s still important to critically analyze it through a contemporary lens. In a musical where Christine is really nothing more than eye candy for the men to fight over, there are a few moments where she is given agency, a few moments where she gets to decide her fate. For example, in the scene where the Phantom has Raoul in a noose, aka the musical reprise of The Point of No Return, he presents Christine with one final offer, singing, Start a new life with me, buy his freedom with your love, refuse me and send your lover to his death. This is the choice, this is the point of no return. End quote. Now, by all means, this is not a very pleasant situation to suddenly be given agency, but as scholar Patricia Dumwright says in her essay, the Phantom of the Opera, spectacular musical, or archetypal story, unbearable choices are choices nonetheless. She continues, writing, quote, and the condition of being presented with options, even entirely negative ones, by a male character, allows the female figure to express some agency for herself and to have some control over her own destiny, End quote. Christine ultimately chooses the phantom, kissing him and showing him compassion for the first time in his life. By doing so, Christine employs what Mary Ann Doanne calls the masquerade strategy, as a way to convince the phantom to listen to her. The masquerade strategy, as Doane states, is a way of, quote, "...disarticulating male systems of viewing, in which men stop looking at women as objects, but as a person instead." Christine uses her femininity not only to distract the phantom from his own anger, but his image of her. End quote. In this moment, she's acting out the Phantom's desired image of her as a wife, even donning the wedding dress. But her actions reflect agency that the mirror bride lacks, and the Phantom can't come to terms with this. The kiss combines his construction of Christine with the actual woman, essentially destabilizing his image of her. As blogger Steffi Wee writes, quote, the Phantom realizes then that the real Christine is not just an animated doll, but much more complex than he thinks, end quote. If you look past the fact that the Phantom killed two people and kidnapped Christine a few times, his storyline is actually quite sad, and it's understandable why viewers root for him in the end. If you feel bad for the Phantom, you're definitely not alone. I'm just not sure if I can justify his actions because he lived a troubled life, if you know what I mean. Well, that's it for this episode. What are your thoughts? Should Les Mis and Phantom of the Opera be considered feminist musicals, despite all their shortcomings? Do their redeeming qualities save the productions? Or are you on the fence and can't decide? That's a valid opinion as well, because quite honestly, that's where I stand. While I can recognize their faults, I still love to watch and sing along to them. When asked to reflect upon these productions, many musical theater fans are turned off by their many flaws and no longer feel like they can enjoy them. So the question is, should we cancel our favorite forms of media because they contain problematic elements? Absolutely not. You can recognize that something is problematic and still appreciate it. What matters is that you do acknowledge it. As blogger Little Bear Schwartz writes in her article, The Feminist Dilemma of My Burning Love for Phantom of the Opera, even the most progressive pieces of entertainment can have their issues. Quote, even when the lead character is a woman, even a kick-ass crime-fighting one, she's often able-bodied and thin. Even when a sexually liberated woman gets a happy ending, she's often white and middle-class, perhaps with a sassy, kooky friend of color. End quote. We can still praise a creator's attempts and successes at being progressive, yet still simultaneously call them out on their weaknesses. The question is, as Little Bear Schwartz writes, How problematic? How many tropes, lazy stereotypes, or offensive jokes are we willing to put up with before it ceases to become enjoyable? And there is no magical number for this. It's a personal preference and will thus vary from person to person. So if you still want to continue to enjoy musicals, TV shows, movies, or books that are deemed problematic, you don't have to feel like you're indulging in a guilty pleasure. Next week, we are wrapping up the contemporary age of Broadway with two of my all-time favorite musicals, one of which is the show that hooked me into this crazy theatrical world. Coming up next week on Curtain Call. We continue our discussion of gender and Broadway musicals in the 1990s, a decade that produced some of the most prolific shows. Our conversation starts in 1992 with the zany yet heartbreaking production of Falsettos needs an ending. A homosexual father with children. One bar for that is scrupulously planned. Lovers come and lovers go. Lovers fight and sing fortissimo. Give these handsome boys a hand. Welcome to Falsetto Land. If you aren't a huge musical theater fan, you might be unfamiliar with this show, and I'm looking forward to introducing it to you. The production follows Marvin, who has left his wife to be with his male partner, Whizzer, and struggles to keep his family together. Central to the musical are the themes of Jewish identity, gender roles, and gay life in the late 1970s and early 80s, when the AIDS epidemic was just beginning in New York City. If you know how many minutes are in one year, 525,600 to be exact, you might be familiar with our second show, Jonathan. Larson's 1996 showstopper, Run. 525,600 minutes, 525,000 moments so dear, 525,600 minutes, how do you measure, measure a year? Rent is technically the musical that ended the contemporary age of Broadway before the industry transitioned into the modern era. The production follows a group of young, impoverished artists trying to make a living and create a life in the thriving days of the bohemian alphabet city, also under the shadow of the HIV and AIDS epidemic. This was one of the first musicals I was ever introduced to and definitely ranks in my top three favorite musicals of all time. Our conversation will deviate slightly from what we've been recently talking about, as I want to discuss how important topics like sexuality, gender identity, and the AIDS epidemic were depicted on a Broadway stage. That's a wrap on today's podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Corder, and thank you again for tuning into Curtain Call. Curtain Call is available through the Apple Podcasting app and Spotify. New episodes are uploaded every week. We'll see you next time.